listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. As many of you know, I grew up in a small country town in western Pennsylvania. And in my small country town, there were small country roads that we traveled to get around. And on one of the routes that I regularly took to get to one of my best friend's house, there was a narrow road that crossed over a one-lane bridge. And as I regularly approached this bridge on the way to my friend's house, I would always take notice of this sign that was on the bridge that said, Yield. And when I saw that sign, I would slow down. Sometimes I would come to a complete stop. And after seeing that there was no one else coming down that one lane bridge, I would then cross the bridge and make my way to my friend's house. And after we would kick it for a little bit, I would jump back in my car and return home. And as I was traveling down that that small country road, I would again come to that that one lane bridge. And as I approached that bridge on my way back home, again, I would notice a sign on the bridge that said, yield. The fact was, there were yield signs on both sides of the bridge. And no matter which side you were coming from, drivers from both directions were told to yield, to give the right away. It didn't matter if you were driving a big, powerful truck or a little Volkswagen bug, you were directed to yield. This was a wise, reasonable, and even merciful instruction from the highway authority. I mean, not only was this wise, it was good. Because if drivers from both sides just selfishly rushed across the bridge without any kind of regard or respect for another driver, It was only a matter of time before something very devastating would take place, before a head-on collision would happen. And it would continue to happen again and again, unless drivers approaching the bridge from both sides respected the sign to yield. The deal is this. It would only be good for everybody... If everybody was willing to choose to yield in respect to the highway authority's instruction. The only way it would be good for everybody is if everybody chose to yield in respect to the highway authority. In our text for today, Christians are commanded to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, as we approach one another in the church, we should envision a sign on the person in front of us that says, submit. Whether you're big and powerful and hold important positions in the world, or you feel small and marginalized, everyone in God's church is directed to submit. But even as we heard this passage read... Each of us probably had some recognition of the fact that this feels like a pretty tough pill to swallow. Maybe you felt some creeping anxiety as I read the text. Maybe you felt a little bit of anger. Maybe you felt a little bit embarrassed and you thought, I just had to invite that friend today. 
<laughs> of all the days I invite this friend, he got me talking about this. <laughs> Maybe you've decided that you want to be on the search committee for Grace Mosaic's new lead pastor. <laughs> I legitimately had the thought this week that went like this. Well, at least my holiday will be uh, less hectic with all the Christmas parties I won't be invited to, you know? <laughs> Looking for the silver lining as I prepared for this sermon. But seriously, we have significant apprehensions with texts like these, don't we? And for a number of reasons. Submission is difficult to talk about. One, because of how deeply our cultural influences have affirmed the ultimacy of individual autonomy and have given us a very Western American version of freedom. Not to mention our conflicted relationship to institutions and our cynicism toward hierarchical institutions. We're cynical. The second reason I'd say we have a hard time talking about submission is that submission is difficult because it's been used to justify real oppression. A third reason why I think it's hard to talk about submission has been used to vilify people with power as de facto oppressors. A fourth reason I think submission has been weaponized for selfish reasons undermining the very other-centeredness and unity it was designed to foster. We have seen submission weaponized by insecure people. We've seen submission used to justify every kind of, of bad thing that we detest. So we have a conflicted relationship with this idea of submission. Here's the deal. My goal this morning is not only to show you that submission is biblical, but that when rightly understood, it's beautiful. And when it's embodied faithfully, it makes the gospel more believable and visible. I want you to see that submission is a wise, reasonable and even merciful instruction from the Lord. In the end. Communal life in the church will only be good for everybody if everybody chooses to submit to one another in reverence for Christ. It will only be good for everybody if everybody chooses to submit to one another in reverence for Christ. So we're going to try to approach our passage for this morning through two points as we consider the spirit of submission and the Lord of submission. The spirit of submission and the Lord of submission. So let's look at the first point, the spirit of submission. I think it's important that we understand uh, the flow of Paul's argument through Ephesians in order to understand how culturally distant and difficult this is for us today. In verse 18, there's something happening here. Grammatically, we are given a controlling verb. And that verb is translated into English, be filled with the spirit, be filled. And that governs a series of participles describing the results of being filled with the spirit. Now, that's the quick exegetical. I'm, I'm rolling with you now, now. Now, this is what I'm saying. Paul says, be filled with the spirit. And then in a series 
of, of statements, he shows you what being filled with the Spirit looks like. What's being filled with the Spirit look like in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing songs and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Addressing, singing, making melody. Three participles. The next participle, verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. The last participle. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And verse 21, y'all, is a hinge point in this unit. Because it rounds off Paul's explicit description of the spirit-filled life. And it launches him into a discussion of how submission plays out in the context of a household order. Now, let me state a few considerations up front. First, everything that Paul is laying out in the rest of the passage to follow is an outlining of the spirit-filled life. This is what people filled with the spirit, controlled, governed by the spirit. This is what they look like in the context of a household order. In other words, resistance to submission is resistance to the spirit in the flow of the argument. Next, it must be said that understood rightly, nothing in the following section is inconsistent with true liberation of human beings from exploitation and oppression. Nothing in this passage is in conflict with true liberation and freeing people from oppression. Paul is not in conflict with Jesus in the way that Jesus dealt with women and the way that Jesus welcomed children and the way that Jesus dealt with people on the margins of society. Paul is not in conflict with Jesus, nor is Paul in conflict with what he has written up to this point in the book of Ephesians. He's been describing the new humanity that God is creating in Christ. He's been emphasizing unity and diversity, cross-cultural oneness in the church that results from the tearing down of the dividing wall of hostility. He is not now turning to tear down everything that he just built in his argument up to this point. So what in the world is Paul doing? What is he doing? Beginning with verse 22, Paul leverages the form of what was known as a household code. And these were common in Greco-Roman writings. They were common in the Greek writings, and then when it became the Greco-Roman Empire, it was common in those writings as well. And what Paul does is he uses the form of a household code to teach the Ephesians and all of those who would read what was possibly a circular letter, how membership in the household of God transforms our life in our own households. Membership in the household of God reshapes the household code. Now, here's what you need to understand about first century Greco-Roman household codes. Is that they were written to address the patriarch of the family. Only he was addressed. And the entire point of the household code was to tell him how to reinforce his domination and control over his household. That was the entire point of a household code. Women were not addressed. Wives were not addressed. Children were not addressed. Slaves were not addressed. Only the man of the house was addressed. And it showed 
that he had unique dignity and value above everyone else in his household. And that was very common in the writings of the time. It was very common to think that it was not just a distinction in role. It was actually a distinction in value that men were more valuable. Given that context, y'all, we need to see that Paul is doing a number of things that are important for us to see in relationship to the other household codes of the time. First, he affirms in order a household structure and suggests a divine source for this structure. But he does this in a way that subverts the first century cultural expressions of that order without discarding the order. Do You see what I'm saying? He doesn't throw the order out altogether. He just doesn't. But what he does is he subverts the way that that order was played out at the time. And he does so by not talking to the head of the household about how to dominate and control the people in his household, but how to serve them and to humble himself. And not only that, the nameless of that society are named. He addresses wives because in Paul's mind, they have equal dignity with their husbands. He addresses children because in Paul's mind, they have equal dignity and are equal belongers in God's community. He addresses slaves who would have had no kind of standing like that. And by the way, one of the reasons why your English Bible translates this as bond servants, it could be translated as slaves or bond servants, is because translators of the Bible are trying to create a distinction between transatlantic chattel slavery and slavery of the first century. They're different. It's still slavery. It's still a bondage, but it's different. It's not racially based. It wasn't in perpetuity. It's different. It's a different category. So it's an attempt to reflect that difference. But Paul addresses the people who would not have been addressed to give them dignity and direction and to elevate them in the minds of everyone in God's community. But he does affirm an order. Paul doesn't remove the headship of the husband in the family order. He redeems it by redefining it. He redeems it by redefining it. And I'm going to readily admit up here, if you don't understand headship right, it just simply becomes a headache. Headship rightly depicted in this text is beautiful. It's beautiful. Paul doesn't remove the headship. He redeems it and redefines it Christologically. In Paul's vision, headship involves a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. He doesn't erase important distinctions of role, nor does he deny equal dignity. Equality and authority are not incompatible. But what he does is he shows you a version of headship that is utterly unique from anything at the time. And here's the deal. What you notice in this passage is that everybody in the passage dies. The head just has to go first. The head has to go first. That's one of the ways that headship takes shape. Paul takes a series, y'all, of relational pairs that at the time were asymmetrical in power dynamics. And he shows the outworking of mutual submission in each of these pairs. Now, submission for Paul does not mean blind obedience, passivity, or going along with evil or ungodliness. 
That same uh, wisdom of, of Augustine, an unjust law is no law at all when it comes to our relationship to government is the same thing that applies in this headship relationship. This does not mean that wives just, it's the word used here is not obedience. And the emphasis here is not on authority, though there is authority. The emphasis is on responsibility. And I'm going to develop that in a second. But submission does not mean what we think it means. You know what submission means for Paul? Given every indication that we have in this text, submission for Paul means giving oneself up to someone for the flourishing of that person. Submission is an ordering under the other for the sake of their flourishing. And each one of the pairs is called to that life. Each one is called to that life while maintaining an existing family structure. This is what Paul's doing. Paul is more Jewish than you could ever imagine. This was built into the way he thought. It was built into his understanding because he had a deep doctrine of creation. And he pulls on the doctrine of creation. He's not making a cultural case here. He's making a doctrinal case based out of creation, protology, and eschatology. He tells you where it's coming from in the created order and where it's going in the end of the story. That's what he does. He anchors it. And he's not just making a cultural case as I'm reading this. I want you to think of headship, this ordering, uh, not headship, sorry, submission, this ordering under another as something akin to Philippians chapter two, verse three. Consider the other better than yourself. This is consistent with what Paul has written elsewhere. And that's the way we're to think about it. Wives are to order themselves under their husbands for their flourishing in everything pertaining to that relationship. This isn't a throwback to 1950s America. This is one-on-one Christianity applied to being a wife. That's what it is. Humble yourself, order yourself under the other for their flourishing, for their benefit. Husbands are to look to the love of Christ for the church as their framework for headship with respect to their wives. And again, I'm going to say this. The primary note that is struck in Paul's description of headship is not authority, but responsibility. Authority is there, but what is highlighted, what is emphasized, what is pushed forward, what cuts across the grain of their culture and ours, is responsibility. And what this means is this. It means that a husband is accountable to God for his wife and children. Even though, look, listen, listen, listen. Even though Eve ate the fruit in the garden, God directly addresses and goes to Adam to ask them about what they had done. And the biblical theological development of this text is telling us this. Everything that we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is a pushing back of the darkness that came with the curse in Genesis 3. The enmity between husband and wife, the wife's desire to rule over her husband and his feeling of the need to dominate her. This is the rolling back of the curse. That's what we see in this text. 
Adam was responsible, answerable to God. And so are husbands today. But some people say, I have a problem with this two-way submission thing. Because some interpret this passage in this way. That verse 21 says, submit to one another in reverence for Christ. And then it goes out to spell out specifically who is supposed to be submitting in these series of asymmetrical relationships. But I want to suggest to you that each one in the pair is called to submit. And I think the case is textual. I think the case is both textual and theological. Because if you look at the word that is used of husbands giving themselves for their wives, the Greek word is paradidomai. So I did a little searching. I did a little searching. And one of the things that I learned is that this word is used in the New Testament to describe those who are given over to the jailer. Those who are given over to the authorities. It's used of Judas selling out, giving over Jesus to the authorities. It's used of God in Romans 1, giving people over to the lusts of their hearts. It's used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, to talk about people giving themselves over to their sins. In other words, what you see is a holistic giving of oneself over. Now, there's a word for that. It's called submission. Let's not play word games here. What you would describe in in practice as submission is exactly what the husband is called to here. He's to give himself over as Christ gave himself over. Let me ask you this. What of himself did Christ hold back from the church? Nothing. There was nothing that he held back by way of effort. There was nothing that he held back by way of humility. There was nothing that he held back by way of seeking the flourishing of his church. And husbands, there's nothing you're to hold back. And the language for that is get low. And when you think you're low, you're not low enough. Get lower and serve your wife. Bless your wife. There are categories here for us. And guess what? If 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 husbands are doing this the way that it's depicted in this text, I can't imagine that many women would have a hard time living in that loving relationship and mutual submission. I can't imagine it. You may. But I like to think that as I witness what's described here in terms of the expectation placed on husbands, you ought to feel loved and valued and cared for and blessed by your husband. Husbands must answer to the Lord. Gents, that ought to cause you some great sobriety. This is, this is sobering. You are on the hook before the Lord. For what? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> For loving your wife as Christ loved the church. For giving yourself for the flourishing of your wife as Christ gave himself for the flourishing of the church. For washing your wife with the word for her growth in grace. I'm not talking about a drip. This is not one of those when you go camping showers. 
We're talking about washing your wife with the water of the word, which means you need to know the word if you're going to wash her with the word. This means you must know the word. This means that you must reflect on the word, that you must be vulnerable with your wife and sharing what it is that God's teaching you about yourself and about his grace. You must, you must enter into a place of vulnerability. You must embody the word. It means that you're going to stabilize your wife with the word, encourage her with the word, inspire her with the word, edify her with the word, comfort her with the word, challenge her with the Lord. You are responsible before the Lord for washing your wife with the water of the word. I want you to take that, husbands, and I want you to take that into a place of prayer and repentance with me because we got work to do. It's completely understandable if many of our wives like feel the stricture of this passage because we're failing to love them. As Christ loved the church and served them and washed them with the water of the word. And guess what else? Paul ain't finished. He ain't finished. He says, nourish your wife. Cherish her. Look, I don't know what this is supposed to, to look like in every iteration, but what are you doing with family worship time? Do you have family worship time? If your family doesn't have family worship time, husbands, it's not on your wife. That's on you. You're on the hook. What are you doing with dinner time? Are you redeeming meal time and using that to encourage and edify your family? Date night. What are you doing? You know, you can keep it holy and romantic. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you can be a, a holistic one-stop shop, girl. I was reading the book of numbers and I realized I didn't have yours. That's what I said to Vanessa when I first. She was like, ooh. You know, you can have quiet time and the song is songs. You know what I'm saying? It's the Bible, y'all. It's the Bible. I'm just trying to walk with the Lord, right? These are all easy occasions for you to be faithful to your role as the head of the household. You have a central role to play in her beautification. You must listen. Here's the point. You must be a husband who leads your wife to the true groom. You must be a husband who leads your wife to the true groom in the way you live, in the way you serve, in the way you pray with and for her, in the way that you think of her, and your gestures of love, and your willingness to say, yes, yes, dear. Yes. Yes, I'm giving you my yeses. As many of my yeses as I can. I'm budgeting my yeses. I'm, I'm getting, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? Nourishing her is physical provision, but also spiritual provision and emotional provision, which means you need to listen, which means you need to empathize. All the stuff that so many of you dear sisters want from a man, if you want a man, is called of them in this passage. Cherishing her. We're not talking about Disney sentimentalism here. It's not. But but here's the thing. It is tenderness. It's not less than romantic, but it's more than romantic. It's the full picture. 
Husbands are responsible to lead every effort toward harmony and oneness. Why? Because of the mystery. Do you see it in the text? It's all about the mystery. And the mystery is about Christ and the church. In other words, there is something at stake in the relationship between husbands and wives when it comes to the analogy toward the gospel. So, in the way that that wives recognize the God-given spiritual authority of their husbands, there is something beautiful in depicting the way that the church recognizes the authority of Christ. In husbands serving and loving and nourishing and cherishing their wives, there is something depicted in the dynamics of the way that Christ is with the church. And we don't want to lose the beauty that's being depicted here. This is why I'm saying it's beautiful. Do you think that what Jesus has done for the church is beautiful? Do you? That's why I'm saying this is beautiful when it's faithfully lived out. It's beautiful when faithfully lived out. Marriage is a signpost that points to the relationship between Christ and the church. That's husbands and wives. But what about children and parents? It tells children to obey your parents in the Lord. And I got some amens on that when we read the scripture. Kids, you know, one of the ways that you grow in understanding what it means to know God and be related to him is the way in which you relate to your parents. So your parents, the way you respond to your parents is supposed to train you. It's like rehearsal for a play in terms of your relationship to God. If as you recognize your parents' authority and you respond in obedience and you follow their instructions, it's actually training your heart to be able to respond to the Lord like that. And as your parents love you and provide for you and take you to do fun things and playgrounds and vacations and all the candy at Halloween, all the good stuff that your parents do for you, they're supposed to be just a faint picture for you of the way that the Heavenly Father is toward his, his children. And that's why when there's this beautiful relationship between children and parents, there's something about the gospel that is depicted in that relationship. But parents, particularly fathers, ooh, I thought it was the women who were supposed to do all that. Look at who is pointed out in this text. I want you to see something. Wives, children, and slaves were different people. But it's most likely that husband, father, and master were the same person. So Paul has taken three runs at that same joker in that house. He's like, do you hear me? That's what's in the text. Listen, don't exasperate or discourage your children by unreasonable demands, by unnecessary interference, by irritable nagging, by perpetual fault finding, by harsh criticism, by unceasing do's and don'ts in a dictatorial manner, by unjust commands. And as they grow older, there are other ways that you can exasperate them by being overly protective, by showing favoritism among your kids, by just discouraging them and beating them up, by failure to make allowance for their age and stage of life. I want you to see something in here. Fathers, there is no picture of the lazy Homer Simpson father in this text. 
No room for disengaged dudes. No room for dudes who say, I don't change diapers. You better change some diapers. You ain't, you ain't babysitting your kids. They your kids. It's called being a father. You see, Paul has got no room for any of those games. And I want you to notice something. I can't get into all of it. Listen, I, I, this, this sermon might raise as many questions as it answers. Probably more. I can't get into everything. But I want to notice, I, I want to pull out something in the slave-master relationship. I want you to look at verse 9. After he tells servants to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Listen to this astonishing call to masters. Verse 9. Do the same to them. Ancient church father Chrysostom said, he suggested that Paul was calling masters to serve their slaves. And to do to them, he's instituting a golden rule thing. Which ultimately was a subversive way of leading toward the ending of slavery. That was the suggestion of some of the early church fathers. This is complicated. There are many writers. What's not complicated is this. The Christian faith is against slavery. There are contextual reasons why Paul doesn't go all the way there in this particular text. I can't get into all of that right now, but it's 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 a challenge in that time and in that day. In that master slave relationship that ultimately leads toward liberation. I'm going to hit my final point very quickly, and this is where it all comes together. The Lord of submission. Here's the deal. Christ fulfills each of these asymmetries. The, the, asymm- the wife and husband, the child and parent, the slave and master. Christ shows us true submission. Wives, Christ shows us true submission. He says that he submits to the father's will. That's astonishing. But his submission to the father's will does not take away his equality with the father, his his shared dignity with the father. Submission was not beneath Christ, so it must not be beneath you. It's image bearing. Both. Now, here's the other thing, too, about that. It's both in his humiliation, in the state of his humiliation and in the state of his exaltation. The scripture specifically used the language of Christ submitting. First Corinthians chapter 15 says that when Christ takes all in all and he gathers the kingdom together, then he will turn to the father and submit it all to him. It's not just in his state of humiliation that Christ submits. It's in his state of exaltation. Christ is the one who fulfills the role for wives to look at for their life. Christ is the true head and husband of the bride. We have that in the text. Christ is the faithful child who obeys the will of the father. Christ is the parent of his children. 
He cares for us. He doesn't exasperate us. He's tender and raises us up and instructs us in the way of wisdom. Christ is the servant of all. Philippians chapter 2. He is the servant of all. He becomes a slave. Same word, douloi. In this text is the word doulos used of Christ in Philippians 2. He becomes a slave. And Christ is the true master of all. He's the Lord. But in his fulfilling of each of these roles, he lends his own divine dignity to them. And he says that we have a role to play in submitting to one another and giving our lives to one another. How you, I want you to think about this. We've talked about this in context of hospitality. Remember when we talk about hospitality, Matthew 25, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. And we talk about seeing Christ in the other. That plays into the way we think about submission. Seeing Christ in the other makes humbling ourselves before them a simple thing. All of us. But here's what I want to say. Freedom is present within this structure. This is not so much a list of do's and don'ts, which quickly gets cultural and gets people overreaching and trying to say that certain things are biblical when they're actually cultural expressions, which is an overreach of authority. What this does is it gives freedom within a structure for that to take shape in in specific ways in specific families and households. What we're given here is not so much a list of do's and don'ts. We're given a mood. And I'm not using that in the Twitter slang way. That's a mood. I still don't know what it means. That. What I mean is it gives us a mood. It's given us an atmospheric kind of sense of the way our household should be. Us submitting to one another. Listen. If waking up in the middle of the night and changing diapers and being at the every beck and call to make sure a child is fed and and clothed, if that's not submission, I don't know what is. Everyone is called to it. What this text does is it addresses us at the level of our imagination as we talked about at our retreat. Here's what I'm saying, and here's the close. If drivers from both sides just selfishly rush across the bridge without regard for the other drivers. If you have no reverence for the authority of Christ, the results will eventually be devastating. In the end, it will only be good for everybody if everybody chooses to yield in respect to the instruction and to the gospel of Jesus. It was the submission of Christ that saved your soul. Let it be part of your moral framework, that you find it part of the joy of your life to humble yourself and submit yourself to one another in joy and reverence to Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.